some things just go together, right? Like peanut butter and jelly, salt and pepper, biscuits and gravy, Burton Ernie, Scooby and Shaggy, the Captain and Tennille. Anybody remember them? Love will keep us together, right? Uh, they, some things just go together. Gladys Knight and the, the Pips, that's right. The Koonamans and Popcorn, right? They just go together. Like Coach Mike Riley and Disappointment. Some things, they just go together. Like Scott Frost and Reclamation Projects. That's probably the best, the closest to an amen I will get all morning right there. Some things just go together. And today's passage is made up of two stories that happened together and apparently were sort of just meant to be together. Um, they they happen in, in Matthew chapter 9, verses 18 through 26. If you have a Bible and you want to turn there, there's a Bible underneath a, a pew in front of you if you want to find Matthew 9, 18. We're going to read that in just a minute. And before we do, I want to tell you this, you know, the, the gospel writers, the different gospel writers organize their gospels the way they tell Jesus' story. They organize them differently. I've said, as we were working through the book of Matthew, Matthew doesn't organize his book chronologically. He, he gives you know, a big block of teaching for a while, the Sermon on the Mount, and then he talks about a few miracles, and then he does some teaching for a while, and so he's kind of topical in the way he organizes. So, and some one gospel writer will, will leave out this miracle, but he'll talk about this, this other one. Well, three of the gospel writers, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, they each share these two miracles. They always happen together, and they always happen in exactly this way. It's kind of a story within a story, where one story starts... And then another little story interrupts the first story, and then the first story concludes. You'll see what I mean as we read through this. Let's read through this together. I better read off the screen so I click at the right time. This is from the New American Standard Bible on the screen. Matthew chapter 9, 18 through 26. While he, and that was Jesus, while he was saying these things to them, a synagogue official came and bowed down before Jesus and said, My daughter has just died, but come and lay your hand on her and she will live. Jesus got up and began to follow him, and so did his disciples. And a woman who had been suffering from a hemorrhage for 12 years came up behind Jesus and touched the fringe of his cloak because she had been saying to herself, If only I touch his garment, I will get well. Verse 22. But Jesus, turning and seeing her, said, Daughter, take courage. Your faith has made you well. And at once the woman was made well. When Jesus came into the synagogue official's house and saw the flute players and the crowd in noisy disorder, he said, Leave, for the girl has not died, but is asleep. And they began began laughing at Jesus. But when the crowd had been sent out, he entered and took her by the hand, and the girl got up. This news spread throughout all that land. So do you see how that's sort of a story within a story? And every time, 
Three gospel writers tell one of these, they tell the other in exactly that same manner. For, for, for whatever reason, these two stories go together. Um, the, the interesting thing about Matthew, Matthew gives v- many fewer details than the other two authors. If you want more details about uh, what happened on this day, look at Mark and Luke as they, as they tell these stories, especially Mark. Mark gives the most details, so much so that when I preached through Mark some six and a half years ago now, uh, I didn't do these two together. I split them up because there's just so much information there. And that's good. I would do it again the same way. If I were preaching Luke, I would separate these two stories. But Matthew, I think so we have to take these two as like two courses of the same meal, two halves of the same sandwich. Matthew gives us a very pared down version of each story. So we'll consider them together. And that's what we're going to do today. We're going to kind of go quickly through each of these miracle stories and then spend a little time talking about what I think we learn from them together, or maybe why God ordained as he carried along the gospel writers to make sure they kept these two, these two stories together. Well, we start with the beginning of the first story, um, where we're told that while Jesus is teaching, um, someone in your Bible might just say a ruler or an official entered the house. They're in Capernaum. This is probably still Peter's house. Peter lives with his wife and his mother-in-law, um, and it's probably where Jesus is still. We know he was there as kind of a base of operations before. And uh, here comes this guy. He's just called a ruler or an official, and he, you can tell he's kind of a big deal in Capernaum, not just because of his title, but because, you know, and sometimes there's a line going out the door of people who want to see Jesus. And this guy just right to the front of the line, plops down before Jesus and basically says, my turn. And that's apparently okay. Um, He's called just a ruler in the text. And if it weren't for Mark and Luke telling this story, we might think he's a political ruler, but he's not. Because in those uh, versions, we're told his name. His name's Jairus. And what he's the ruler of or the official of is the local synagogue, which can think of that as a local church. The temple's clear in Jerusalem. And, and he is the, the synagogue ruler. And what that means, he's not a teacher. He's not a preacher. But he is like the, the overseer of the synagogue. He's in charge of the place. He sets the teaching schedule. He makes sure there's, because different people taught in a synagogue, he probably made sure the right scrolls were ready for the right teacher. Uh, Archaeology tells us next door to this synagogue in Capernaum, there was a pretty good sized house. And that's, we would kind of call it like a parsonage. That would have been where this guy um, lived. And he's kind of just a sort of big man on campus in Capernaum. He's an important guy in this Jewish community. And, and this guy, Jairus, we're told, he comes to the front of the line and notice he bows low before Jesus. That would, have, that would not have been lost on anybody in the crowd that day. He's positioning himself under Jesus in that culture, visibly showing that Jesus is the superior in this sort of relationship. And what he says in Matthew's version, he says, my daughter has just died. 
But if you come and lay your hand on her, she'll live. That's an enormous amount of faith. Um, Matthew's, if you know the other versions, you might be surprised to read that. Because in the other versions, uh, in, Mark tells us that when he left his house, his daughter was still alive, though the language tells us just barely, and he expected her to die. Um, but, you know, in Mark's, as Mark tells the story with more detail, she's still alive. She dies shortly after he left his house. Um, and, and, and they learn of that. Matthew's just saying, hey, I want to tell you the story about the time this guy's daughter died and Jesus raised her to dead, raised her from the dead. And so he, he gives us uh, fewer details, kind of cuts to the chase. So this guy, regardless, he, he believes Jesus, even if he thinks as he gets there that his, his daughter is just in a coma or on the edge of death. He believes Jesus, if you come and touch her, her condition won't be, won't be a problem. How do you suppose a guy like Jairus got that kind of faith in Jesus? What did Jairus do for a living? He was the ruler of the synagogue. Who are the people that do the teaching in a synagogue? They're people like scribes and Pharisees. Scribes and Pharisees, by this point in Jesus' story, not the best friend of Jesus. They don't like Jesus much. That's who this guy works with. Where could he decide, Jesus is the place I need to go for help and think that's okay? You know, the, the Gospels are silent on this, but I, I think there's too much evidence to, to not believe in what I'm about to tell you. Do you remember who built the synagogue in Capernaum? In chapter 8, we met a guy called the centurion. And the centurion's like the local sheriff, kind of. Um, there's a sermon online if you want to re, uh, listen to that story a centurion's faith or something like that. But the centurion built this guy's house and the place where he works. And they're both leading men in this community. And the centurion one time sent for Jesus because he had this dear servant that he loved and he had come to believe that if Jesus just gave the command, the order, his servant would recover. And it's exactly what happened. I'm convinced there's just no logical way that these two men didn't at least know each other. And what if the centurion was the one telling Jairus, I'm trying to tell you, buddy, who can fix this. I don't care what the scribes and Pharisees say. Well, for whatever reason, he goes, he plops down before Jesus. and says, hey, if you, will you come heal my daughter? And Jesus decides, yes, I will. And his, his disciples get up. To leave, and they're headed for Jairus's house. And at some point along that procession, they are interrupted by a rather anonymous woman. In verse 20, Matthew tells us a woman who had been suffering from a hemorrhage for 12 years came up behind Jesus. Uh, this woman, we don't learn her name in any of the Gospels, she has, she's had a problem with irregular bleeding for a dozen years. I could take, just take my word for it on this. I could take you to another place that word for hemorrhage is used. This is a decidedly feminine sort of bleeding, okay? Um, her condition would have left her ceremonially unclean perpetually. And what that means is the law would have said there's certain parts of society she was not allowed to be a part of. 
We talked about this a lot with a leper back in chapter 8. The difference between her and a leper, though, is that she can hide her condition. She can pretend that she's not unclean. She can suffer more in, in silence. And she's suffering. Mark gives us a lot more details. She's tried every cure, every doctor, everything possible. And Matthew tells us she sort of sneaks up behind Jesus and touches, your Bible might call the hem of his garment, the edge of his cloak, something like that. I like this picture because it shows, you see that little tassel looking thing right there? That's called a, a craspidon or a tzitzit. And it, uh, it's something that obedient Jews were commanded to wear. And in the book of Numbers, part of the law, Old Testament, said that all Israelites are to, to make tassels for themselves that would hang out the edge of, of their garment. There had to be a blue cord through it. And every time they saw this, it was supposed to remind them, you don't follow your heart in this life. You don't follow your hopes and dreams. Disney hadn't been invented yet. They were to follow God and the law. It was the symbol of behavioral righteousness. And for whatever reason, it's kind of a superstitious notion, this woman had decided, I've tried everything else, but maybe, just maybe, I know Jesus is a healer. He's healed you know, dozens and just scads of people. If I sneak up behind him, and, and for whatever reason, she thought that, like tassel thing, if she touched that, maybe that would heal her. You know what? This really is, this miracle especially, but both of them, are like a picture of what happens at the cross. Because, because she's unclean ceremonially, what she does breaks the law. If you're in a state of uncleanness, you cannot sneak up behind somebody because when you touch them, your uncleanness transfers to them. So she, in grabbing you know, the symbol of Jesus' righteousness and obedience, you know, she transgresses the same law that that thing is the symbol of. Does that make sense? And her uncleanness would have passed to Jesus, but his cleanness heals her. And man, if there's, that's just what happened at the cross. Our sins went on him. And his righteousness gets put on those of us who believe that he did that for us. So that's like who this woman is. And one more thing I want you to know. She, uh, Verse 21, I like this translation. It says, For she kept saying to herself, that the Greek verb lets us know she did this over and over and over. She kept saying to herself, If I can only touch his cloak, I'll be healed. Healed. Come on, girl. You got this. You can do this. Just sneak up behind. Nobody's ever going to know. Because you've got to go through this huge crowd of people, and she's making everybody unclean that she bumps into the whole way. But nobody's ever going to know. I'll just try this. Just a hit and run. I'm going to touch this. I'll be real secret and quiet. Nobody's ever going to know. And she does it. And it works. Just exactly how she planned. She sneaks up behind Jesus. She just touches the edge of her cloak and she's going to get away with it scot-free except what does Jesus do in verse 22? He outs her. (laughs) He I mean, he like rats her out. Again, more detail in Mark and Luke where we learn Jesus turns around and says, all right, who touched me? 
Who is it? You know, and can you just see her like, oh boy. And his disciples are like, Jesus, there's a huge crowd of people here. There's lots of people touching you, you know. And he's like, nope. And he's, telling, he's, he's talking to this lady and she knows it. He basically says, I'm not leaving until you stand up. Tell everybody what you did and why you did it. And so she sneaks, she stands up, says, okay, uh, I used to have this really terrible problem. I was, you know, hemorrhaging 12 years. And I thought I could just get in here and, and uh, you know, get healed. And now I am healed. But Jesus made me tell you all what the problem is. I will now go light myself on fire. Thanks. Thanks a lot, Jesus. Um. And Jesus outs her, I think, for a couple of reasons. One, he doesn't want her going away telling people that he's a lucky rabbit's foot. Um, He knew who touched him. He knew what her problem was. He uses her for uh, for an example. Um, He also knows he's going to make her very uncomfortable when he outs her. So he does something really special. Uh, in verse 22, do you see what he calls this, this woman? He calls her daughter. This is the only person in the scripture Jesus refers to as his daughter. Um, it's just a very tender thing. This is somebody, she's unclean. She's tired of being tired. She has to have been anemic for years and years and years. She's desperate. She wants to remain anonymous. And he outs her in front of everybody, but he does it in such a tender way where he says, listen, sweetheart. It's a very tender word. I don't, it's more tender than daughter. Honey, sweetheart, child. I just had to do this so people know it's faith that makes people well. By the way, it's not even the word well. Here's how desperate this gal was. You see where she says, if only I touch the edge of her cloak, I will be healed. She uses a word, the word for saved. Uh, from sozo, the word we get soteriology, if you know what that is, the study of how people are saved, salvation. She's so desperate. She is looking to be saved from her condition. And he says, I just had to stop and make you stand up and tell people what you did because I, I want them to know it's faith that, makes pe- that saves people, that makes people well. She sort of disappears back into the crowd. The procession to Jairus' house continues. And he makes it to the house in verse, verse 23. Jesus and his disciples, with this little girl's funeral already ramping up into full swing. And this, this is one of those things where culturally this does not compute with us at all. Right? I, um, you know, we read, so they, so they get there and there are flute players and a disorderly loud crowd, okay? But this is normal visiting. If you went to someone's house in first century Palestine and someone had just died, you would hear flute players, lots and lots and lots of noise. In our culture, if this were today, Jesus would arrive and people would be bringing casseroles, right? And not staying, if you knew them very well, maybe you would be there just to be there and to be very, and be quiet, right? Um, it's just, it just doesn't make any sense to us. But this is culturally, you know, we lower the flags to half staff for a period of time for mourning, right? There was a period of time 
that was expected for mourning. And mourning was supposed to be loud and, and announced so people could hear it all over the place. I mean, in our culture, if, like, next time someone dies, if Zoe showed up, she's the only one I know that plays the flute. If Zoe showed up and started marching around playing her flute in their house, like, we would have Zoe, like, taken away to talk to some nice people, right? That would just be weird. But that's what, sorry, Zoe, I don't know anybody else who plays the flute. Uh, that's what, this is normal. It's supposed to be uh, one ancient source that I read about uh, says that even in this culture, even the poorest people were supposed to hire um, at least two wailing women and one flute player. And I may have those mixed up. But you had to, because for that period of time, the wailing, the crying was not supposed to stop. Well, it's hard to start crying and just keep crying no matter what. So you had to hire people that were good at this. People who could start crying and keep crying through the whole process. And I don't know if they had like a crying relay team where they would hand off the crying baton or what, but it was supposed to keep going. I think, I didn't find this, I think they hired Chiefs fans because we are used to lots of crying. I haven't, I'm not sure on that, but I think so. But that, that's what's going on in their house. And the reason I tell you that that is respectable mourning is because when Jesus shows up to us, he looks like the hero that gets to that house and kicks out all the nonsense. But I want you to know how rude what Jesus does would have seemed in that culture. Because when he, in verses 24 and 25, when Jesus gets there, he kicks out everybody that is doing what is supposed to be done when someone dies. And it's a forceful word from Ekbalo. It's a word for throwing something. Jesus throws these people out of the house so that that house is suddenly silent. And to us culturally, that sounds like finally someone with some sense. But this would have been very rude. It would, just, it would be like us if someone passed away and you took a marching band over and into their house. And Jesus says, the reason I'm doing this, the reason I'm kicking all this noise out, not because that's not appropriate for a funeral, because there shouldn't be a funeral. You shouldn't be in full-fledged mourning because that little girl is not dead. She's only taking a nap. And, and people begin to make fun of Jesus and mock Jesus. These are people on the paid funeral circuit. Right? Because Jairus is a man of means. He would have had lots of flute players, lots of wailers, and they know dead people when they see him. It's what they do for a living. And Jesus gets everybody out of the house except for a few people. And he goes into this little 12-year-old girl. Mark tells us she's 12 years old. And he leans down at her bedside and he grabs her by the hand. And this little dead girl comes back to life. In verse 26, news of this spread throughout, throughout that region of Galilee. Now because of Jesus' own explanation, she's not dead, she's only asleep. Maybe as the word traveled, people had room to go, oh, that wasn't really, that wasn't really a miracle. Jesus even said she wasn't dead. The funeral, professional funeral folks said she was. And also, what if she was just in a coma? He grabbed her by the hand. And was that just impeccable timing? 
And word spreads about what Jesus has done. Okay, that's the story. As brief as I can make it. Those, the story within a story. And the, the time I have left, I want us to consider why those are taken together, given to us together, and, and what we should learn. The reason I think these two miracles God apparently ordained, we're not going to separate these two when we tell these stories. We're going to tell them together. It's because I, I, it almost doesn't matter who you are. You can identify with someone in one of those two stories. You, you can put yourself in their shoes. You can feel more or less like they felt. And I think it's pretty universal. And so I want to go through some of these characters and see if maybe you are like him or her. First, we'll look at Jairus, the synagogue ruler. If you've ever had a big public problem, the, the kind of problem that you feel like everyone in town knows about this, the kind of problem that you really don't want to go outside, I think that makes you a little bit like Jairus. Something else I have to explain culturally is this would have been a shameful situation for Jairus. Because everyone, okay, most if not everyone, in that culture would have believed, well, if, you had, if your little 12-year-old girl got sick enough that she died, it's because either there's sin in her life that God is, somehow you're getting what you deserve. You, uh, either you as parents messed something up, or she is so bad that that's the, way it, that's the way it works. Now, that's not true. Later on in the book of Matthew, Jesus is going to blow that idea out of the water. Uh, but that's the way the culture operated. So there would have been shame for Jairus. Because either I failed as a daddy because my little girl so bad she got this, or I've just failed as a person that this is me being punished. You ever... You ever felt the kind of shame that's like, I don't want to go outside. I don't want to go to work. I don't want to go to school. Everybody knows. That's Jairus. Now let me ask you a question real quick. And it's not a hard one because the answer's on the screen. But why do you suppose, assuming this childhood illness is like most childhood illnesses and this girl didn't just get sick and die like right away in the same day, Assuming this, there was some time involved here, why did Jairus wait until she was either dead or he expected her to be dead shortly? Why did he wait so long before he decided, I'm going to take this problem to Jesus and I'm going to do it publicly? Why do you suppose he waited so long? You know why I think he waited so long? Because his friends and his bosses were scribes and Pharisees. The people who decided whether or not he kept a job didn't like Jesus. And so I believe he had one friend telling him, you should go to Jesus. Jesus can fix this. Come on, let go to Jesus, buddy. But he waited because, oh, maybe is there any other way this will get better? Because the people I work with, the people I hang out with, aren't going to like me going toward Jesus. Can anybody identify with that? 
Can you, can you identify with not wanting to be the weird Jesus guy or the weird Jesus gal in your circle of friends? The religious one. It happens all the time. And listen, another pattern in life that you may be able to find yourself in with Jairus. Very, very often, people come into my office and they are ready to go toward God with their problems. But you know why? Because their life has completely fallen apart. It's a complete disaster. And they're like, now I'm at my rock bottom. And like, I have nothing left to lose. So now I'm ready to go toward Jesus. That's what Jairus does. He waited till his little girl was dead. Hoping somehow God would fix this without me having to publicly go toward Jesus. How low does your rock bottom need to be? That's how we're like Jairus, if we ever have a public problem that everybody knows about. Don't wait. Don't wait. You can trust the the healer. You can trust the healer. Now maybe the person you can identify with or the person you need to identify with in this story isn't even in the story. Because I'm convinced that Jairus had one friend who loved Jesus. Just one friend who loved Jesus, who wasn't like the scribes and Pharisees. What if he just had one person that was telling him, buddy, who cares what they think? Go toward Jesus with this. You can trust the healer. I've been there. I know it's embarrassing. It's better. It's worth it. Just go. I think everybody needs a friend like that. What if what God wants from you today is that you would begin to be this kind of friend to someone else who, who needs to go toward Jesus before that rock bottom is any lower? Maybe, though, the person you're more like in this story is, is, is the woman with the bleeding issue, and you do not have to be a female to identify with this person. Maybe you have problems that you wouldn't dare turn in a prayer request card for. Maybe you have issues, scars, things in your past. You have some habit you can't break. You have some problem you can't kick. And like this gal, you're thinking, like, God, just take this away. You've tried everything else and you're trying to do it secretly and privately. And here you are six months, six years, two decades down the road. You know, one reason I think Jesus outed this woman and made sure it was preserved for us in the Gospels is because he, God knows, God knows What we would prefer is that God would fix our stuff without anybody ever finding out. And it doesn't always work that way. Jesus, through this woman, teaches us that our faith in Christ, our relationship with Jesus, is intensely personal, but it was never intended to be private. 
Christianity is a team sport. I'm not telling you you have to tell everybody everything. That's not true. It's not biblical. Jesus didn't even do that. But I am telling you, if you've been dealing with the same secret problem that you don't ever want anybody to ever know, how long is that going to continue before you decide, maybe like Jesus, he's trying to out me on this thing? For a few reasons. One's very logical. Until maybe, maybe that thing that, that you wish would go away, you're not even, you like don't even admit to yourself it's a real problem. You've got all kinds of excuses and justifications about why you are the way you are. Maybe you don't even admit it to yourself. Until you admit something is a problem, it is never going away because you will not fix what you haven't admitted is broke. And if it's something I've dealt with for a long time, I've proven one thing. I can't fix this on my own. And how, how many years do you have to try to deal with it before you admit, I, I, if I could deal with this on my own, it would be fixed by now? Maybe you need to go toward Jesus like this woman did and let him say, I want you to out yourself in some limited way. Maybe you need to find somebody that you can trust, that you can share this with, admit this is a problem, this is what I've been struggling with. Can you help me? Can you walk through this with me? You know, maybe I didn't put this on the screen, but maybe the person you need to identify with is Jesus in here, that you can be someone, someone can bring a shameful, disgusting problem to, and you can, I don't know, care about them anyway. And walk through that with them. And there's a, there's a powerful testimony for Jesus that this woman illustrates for us. There's a powerful testimony that somebody that can stand up and say, here's the problem I have. Here's the problem I used to have. Here's who I used to be. Here's how Jesus came into that problem. Here's who he used. And now here's how I'm walking in repentance. I'm walking in some freedom. Here's the accountability I walk in. Here's how I'm not that person I used to be. There's a, there's a powerful testimony for Jesus in that. And to show you what else, something else that ties these two stories together... What was it that kept this woman from going public before? Because if it doesn't work, everybody's going to know. Everybody's going to be mad at me for having gone through that crowd. I can't take that risk. I need to keep this quiet. This faith of ours is intensely private. Excuse me, intensely personal. It's never intended to be private. You know, that's why Jesus said at the end of this book, I hate to give away the ending, but when we get to the book, end of the book of Matthew, the risen Jesus is going to give something called the Great Commission. He's going to tell his disciples, I want you to go into all the world and make more disciples. And when you make a disciple, what were they supposed to do with them? Baptize them 
inside a closet where nobody could see. No. Why do we baptize disciples, believers? There's, it's not because there's anything magic in the water. You know where we get ours? Out of a spigot in the alley out there. And it runs through a garden hose and it fills up a tank up here. What's special about, this, about baptism is because it's me saying, I'm going public. I've decided he is the one, he is the healer that can breathe life back into the dead places in my soul. I'm tired of trying to fix everything in private on my own so nobody knows. I want to tell everybody, I can't fix what's wrong. He can. That's a public display of what I've already decided personally. It's personal. It's not private. Fear of being public with my faith is exactly just like this woman. Oh man, people might know. I may have to talk in front of people. But the truth is, there's one other person in this story that every single person in here is, is like. In one like one screenshot or the other in this story. And that's this, you are just like a little 12-year-old girl in this story. (laughs) In that you are either on the edge of death, dead in your trespasses and sins, as Paul would say, or you've been touched by the hand of Christ and raised to newness of life. There is only one way to get that. And it's from Jesus. It's from this healer that we can trust. And we can think of a thousand reasons why we would never want to go public with this faith. But this faith is the only way that he will breathe life into this death. And he does it in small ways, in my problems and issues. He does it in big ways in my my eternal life. The truth is we're all faced with either eternal life with God or eternal separation from God. And what we do with Jesus makes the difference. So just by way of closing here, like what are you, what's your shame? What are you hiding? And what are you waiting for? You can trust this healer. I I do not want to lie to you and say he's okay with you just being a closet secret Christian that nobody ever knows and you just he's not okay with that. It's just not in the New Testament. And I know it's scary and I know it's uncomfortable. But he uses people who will who will be public with their faith. I don't know what it is. Maybe he's putting on your heart this morning. Is he encouraging you to find somebody to get some help with an issue, with a problem? Is he encouraging you to take a step like baptism where I've never been baptized as a believer? Is that what he would encourage you to do? Uh, Does he just want you to be like Jesus in this story where you can be uh, someone who can hear difficult things and still care? So you want you to be like Jairus where you can become that friend that tells someone else where the hope is found that you have in Christ.
Or maybe today's the day that Jesus takes you by the hand and raises you from death to life. Pray with me. Uh, Heavenly Father, I just want to give you a few minutes with your people here to, uh, to speak to them. Uh, so just, just if you're here today, I would invite you to pray this uh, just in the quietness of your heart. Just say, Lord, what would you want me to do because of what you said through Pastor Matt today? What would you want me to change? Where would you want me to go? God, I thank you for uh, whatever you've just done to work in uh, through your Holy Spirit into the hearts and the minds of, of people here. I just want to pray for them that they would have the courage that as they leave here, they would, uh, they would just write down either on paper or just in their hearts and make a commitment uh, to, to do what you have put on their heart this morning. God, it, it's terrifying uh, to be a public Christian at times, to out ourselves with our problems, but I thank you that you know us and you care for us, you call us daughter, you call us son, when we are vulnerable before you, I pray God that you would make a testimony out of us, someday someone uh, could hear us say, here's what I used to struggle with, here's how Jesus came into that situation. Here's the freedom that I have that came only in him. God, do that in us, through us, for us, but for you and your glory in Jesus' name. Amen.